Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Miramichi Historical Linkages podcast. I'm Sean McCarthy, joined today by Tasha Smith, my colleague, and our special guest, Dr. Ellen McEachern from Western University of Canada, uh, who's going to be talking to us today a little bit about uh, his work in environmental history and also the book that he wrote in 2020 about the Great Miramichi Fire. So, uh, Dr. McEachern, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean and Tasha. So, uh, maybe just kind of start off with, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, your work generally, and especially in environmental history, because I think it, it may be something that uh, a lot of our listeners maybe are not as familiar uh, about when they think about environmentalism. They often think about the sciences. Um, but maybe, yeah, and maybe kind of uh, speak about some of the work that you do uh, and, uh, yeah, and uh, your, uh, your achievements in environmental history. Well, my achievements. I mean, we only have a half hour, Sean. Okay, uh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I joke. urge you to modesty. <laughs> That'd be a first. So let me just say, um, what would I say? I would say that uh, environmental history is the history of humans' relations with nature. And I got into it in, I guess, in the 1980s when it was really, really, really just starting as a field. And one of the reasons I got into it was I thought that there was a whole lot of subjects to cover, and the Miramichi Fire actually turned out to be one of them, that I felt were really underrepresented in that we didn't know enough about them in history. And also, I got to say, I thought that that it was the kind of topic, environmental history was the kind of topic that would was unlikely unlikely to be trendy in that I couldn't see us in the future worrying less about the environment than we were worrying now. So I thought that um, I thought it would have legs and it has had legs. And I think a lot there is more interest now in people writing about the history of humans experiences with nature. So what have I done since then? I've just tried to do a whole bunch of topics that I felt were not uh, covered in Canadian history. Um, a little bit of history of environmentalism, but most of my stuff has not been on history of environmentalism, but history of National parks and uh, and natural disasters, and uh, and some work on tourism as well and things like that. But I got to say, I mean, the Miramichi fire seems to me like the perfect example of why we need more environmental history because here is a topic that was huge not just in 19th century New Brunswick but in 19th century Canada, and it just disappeared in the 20th and 21st century. So it was it was really nice to get the chance to write about it. Well, with that in mind, uh, you know, what what kind of brought you uh, to that project? Because, I mean, you really have written the, the definitive work uh, on uh, on the fire, you know, again, because I think you and you've noted yourself that there that uh, it was something that was covered kind of, you know, mentioned a lot in, in, in a lot of different works, but never really kind of covered in, you know, on its own. Um, so. Uh, other than other than you know that fact, I mean, what else kind of brought you to uh, the project on the fire? Well, Sean, first of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to blurb my next book. I mean, I like the sound of definitive work. That sounds pretty good. Um, I uh, I gotta say, I was I was reading about I was reading an 1864 book called Man and Nature, which is kind of a famous book in the history of environmental thought by a guy named George Perkins Marsh, an American. And he mentioned in a footnote, he mentioned the Miramichi fire. 
he, he, he talks about kind of offhand and says how it was the biggest fire in human history and that everything was destroyed for generations and may never grow up again. And I, you know, as a, I should mention I'm a maritimer myself. I'm from Prince Edward Island. So I kind of took interest in this and thought, I'm definitely going to find more people have been writing about this fire. And I kept looking for it. I kept looking for it. Didn't find anybody had really written about it. So fast forward a couple decades and, uh, or slow forward a couple decades. And I thought, um, this, maybe this is what I should be doing. And so I started kind of piecing together as much information as I could about the Miramichi fire. And I mean, one of the real joys or obsessions of the project was finding all the neat stuff that people had bypassed. And to me, the reason the fire was forgotten, and this is kind of the, this is the uh, spoiler for the book. The reason the um, fire has been forgotten is that trees grew back up. So once they grew back up and grew back more healthy, the forests were more healthy than people thought they were ever going to be. People thought, well, they must have exaggerated the fire in the first place. But I really don't think the fire was exaggerated in the first place. It was just that this was a really healthy, resilient forest. It grew back and uh, it papered over itself, kind of. Very good. Very good. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and I know, you know, you've mentioned, um, you know, that uh, – the, the, the work by Ganong, you know, uh, especially was, uh, how, I really liked how you put it, that used nature's uh, regenerative properties to discount its destructive properties. So, right. you know, I, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, that I've spoken to um, that have read the book were really kind of impressed with the way that it was put together. Um, and especially kind of from that environmental um, standpoint, uh, I think I think a lot of us, and I think you mentioned it in the book a lot, where there's so many kind of uh, stories and maybe almost kind of legends uh, around the fire that I think a lot of people, when they think about the history of the fire, they're really kind of looking at it um, as being, you know, a collection of those of those stories. Um, but you really kind of, you know, you've you you've welded kind of the the natural and the human elements of this uh, together. Uh, in such a in, in such an interesting way, um, so I guess maybe other than uh, other than that, I mean, what um, what positive benefits did looking at this from an environmental standpoint um, bring to the study of the Great Miramichi Fire? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Like, I'm I'm glad that I should say, by the way, that um, I don't know who's read this book. I mean, it's so hard. You throw a book out into the world and you don't really know who reads it. And, uh, you know, if um, it's nice to I imagine that there's a few people in the mirror machine have read it. And I'm glad. And, uh, mm. you know, I'd um, I'd love to come uh, talk somewhere on the mirror machine about this book sometime. Um, but um, in terms of environmental things, you learn environmentally. I mean, I think that. Um, one of the things that I think that the book suggests um, is simply the scale of the, I don't I don't know if it's more of an environmental or cultural thing, but the scale of forestry and the importance of forestry um, of of timbering in this region, which of course we knew about, but I think what the 
the book is uh, tells us a lot is a, a lot about the relations between humans and nature in this period. And I think it, it does that in a lot of ways in terms of the kind of freedom to cut, the, the, the not worrying about um, uh, about setting fires because because who cares? Because there's basically an endless amount of of uh, woods here anyway. I think that was the, one of the things. And but to me, maybe the lessons of the book are whatever um, are not so much environmental as more um, cultural. And I, like I really tried to paint the Miramichi as kind of the Fort McMurray of the British Empire at that moment. That it was the one that was really fueling everywhere else, which which. Remarkably, I think 1825 was really the peak, even before the fire, it was probably going to be the peak of Miramichi mm -hmm. as, a, as a timber area anyway. And then the fire um, fire was one of the things, including economic decline and other things like that, that were probably going to cut its impact somewhat anyway. But at that moment, it was really at the peak of its power. Hmm. So something else that you really kind of brought out in 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 the book was kind of the international uh, context uh, of this fire. I think a lot of people, and certainly myself, before I, before reading it, really kind of understood the fire as kind of very much um, a regional uh, event, but it wasn't, of course, and it was something that was part of a, a, a larger se series of fires that uh, that were in uh, the northeast northeastern North America at that time. Um, so maybe could you comment a little bit about kind of the, the international uh, scope, I guess, uh, during and after uh, the fire mm -hmm. and that element? Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right, that I think that this was very much an international fire. Um, uh, I think it had effects in, in Great Britain, of course, uh, economic effects and even in, in terms of wood supply. But in terms of the fire itself, I mean, one of the most remarkable things that I discovered are from I believe I discovered was that in Montreal itself, there were fires right around Montreal and that late into the 19th century, they were still referring to those fires right around uh, Montreal as the Miramichi fire. And it, it's because of time, because these were happening at, at the same time. But the fact of the matter is they may well have been connected because fires were burning all across that um, area, all across the Northeast in October 1825. I mean, the same day as the Miramichi fire in New Brunswick, Maine had its greatest forest fire ever. I mean, this was happening over a large area. And I tried to be, I tried not to spread the fire. I tried not to pretend that it was everywhere in the world at this moment and, and, and exaggerate the fire's influence. But I also tried not to minimize it because, so I tried to rely so much on, um, on, sources from that very moment. And in fact, Sean, you asked me earlier about, um, you asked me earlier about legends and that, like I love some of the legends and stories that have grown up around the fire, but I didn't want to, to mix those up in a way with the primary sources from October, 1825. So I wanted to make it clear when I was talking about sources from that time, and then occasionally talk about in a separate area of the book about, um, about stories and legends that have come out afterwards. So, Tasha, I don't want to monopolize the conversation here. Uh, I think I'll turn things over to you for a little bit. Uh, any questions you might have? Well, at this moment, not so much questions. I, I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I have not read the Miramichi Fire yet, but I definitely am putting that on my uh, to-do list. Uh, 
for books, but I do, I want to make a comment because Sean is always so kind to share, to send links before podcasts with um, people <laughs> when we have guests, depending on who invited them. And I was going through them and I, there was something that you made a comment about and it was like uh, getting this research and attaining this knowledge. And the goal is to share that knowledge with other people that really like struck a chord with me. Um, I don't want to speak uh, for all my colleagues, but I do feel like they probably feel roughly the same in the sense that we kind of hope this podcast will do that in a sense as well as help share all the knowledge that we've acquired or other people like our guests coming on so kindly to share their experiences and knowledge. Um, I just really admired that. And um I will it's kind of like a motivation almost in a sense. I want to continue to do what you guys do as scholars and share all your work and make these awesome connections or bring this unknown information to even food for thought. Cause sometimes people don't think about these things. So when people hear it, it kind of gets their brain tinkering and, I guess that's one of my favorite things to do is to get people's brains tinkering. <laughs> so I really like that because you were getting my brain tinkering, but I was like, I need to read a little bit more and stuff in order to get more questions brewing. But uh, right. <laughs> thank you again. for. <laughs> well, like one thing I would say about that is, I mean, history is weird. I mean, maybe university scholarship is weird because you, you publish something and you go, ta-da, and you hope the world notices. And of course, there's lots of, you know, there's a, I don't know, there's a, there's a new episode of Love is Blind on and, the, and you know, you don't get the <laughs> attention you wish you got. And, uh, but history has a way of kind of embedding itself. Like it does, has what I think of as a low off the lot depreciation that people, that people keep, can keep coming back to it and finding it. Um, so you have to, you have to trust that people are finding it eventually, but you know, but we're impatient. Like, you know, I don't want to wait 20 years for someone to find this book. I want to, so, you know, the reason I talk to you is that hopefully more people will find this book and, uh, and, and share the information and knowledge. And that works in both directions too. I mean, one of the, the, mm -hmm. one of the funny slash terrible things about writing a book like this is that as soon as you, publish it then people started contacting me with stories they started saying oh yeah but of course you need to actually have they need to know you're working on it they have to know it's so um it's it's lovely to hear from people after the fact even though you know there's probably never going to be a second edition to this book but it's lovely to hear after the fact from people who are who have engaged with it and, and things like that um yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's a lot of fun to have the book in paper form, but it's also a lot of fun to be able to kind of talk about it in different ways and to learn more about it. So. It sounds very rewarding being able to see that people did pick up on and read the work that you've shared with everybody else in your knowledge. So it's like, it's nice to see that um, it connects with other people's lives at some point, one way or another. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting uh, trait. Well, yeah, 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 it definitely is. It's, um, mm -hmm. It is rewarding, you know, unless they hate it, and that happens. Too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I never thought of that part. <laughs> so, no, it's funny. Um, you can you can write a whole book, and for example, uh, Napan N A P. I can't even remember now which is the modern spelling N A P P A N or N A P A N. N A P A N Napan. And uh, Napan. So historically, and in some maps I use, Napan is N A P P A N. Okay, two piece. And mm -hmm. then people, people, God love them, they'd say, I really like your book, but you misspell Napa. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> right, 50 pages, that's the only thing you notice. But yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Any other commentary, Marks? No, no, no. Everyone would be great. I love the people in Miramichi. I never say anything bad about them. <laughs> well, spellings of Napa, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't heard any. I haven't heard any comments about that myself. But I mean, uh, like I say, a lot of the folks that I've talked to that have read it, you know, highly recommended and really okay. were. Uh, you know, really enjoyed it and thought it was a great read. Um, thought that, like I say, that that kind of uh, uh, synergy between in the human experience, but also looking at, you know, like how does a fire start? How does a firestorm get created? Those sorts of things I think were, were, were really important, especially, like I say, looking at, you know, uh, the fire starting because, I mean, we've heard so many stories over the years, you know, whether it was a lightning strike, whether it was, you know, fire from somewhere else, whether it was the devil, you know, uh, right. you know, th th those sorts of things, you know, but I mean, to kind of have a, you know, a, a look at, you know, we know that the fire started, but we don't know how, and we're never going to know exactly how, you know, um, so I think those things are really important to people and being able to kind of, you know, uh, cover to cover, get a sense of, you know, this, this event, which, like I say, has often been hinted at or, you know, described in, in, in very brief detail. Uh, but be, to be able to kind of do a thorough investigation and really kind of understand it, I think, has meant a lot to people here in the river. Mm. Well, thanks. I think the science stuff is particularly, I mean, you can't just, when you're writing something like this, you can't just subcontract it to the geologists and the hydrologists mm. and, and like staple a paragraph of theirs. you got to figure out how to write it on your own, the sciencey part. And, and write that in a way that for, and I mean, I did write this, I mean, this sounds kind of strange because I'm not a Miramichi'er, but I wrote it really for the people of Miramichi because I thought if anybody's going to read this, they're going to read this. So I wanted it to be as, I wanted it to be um, relatively approachable or about as approachable as I could make the book. So you write this book on, you know, fire's effects on soils and rivers. And you like you jam it in your head for about three days, as much as you can learn about fires, effects and soils and rivers. And then you put it down, it becomes a paragraph. And then you remove that from your head and never think about that again. Like, <laughs> and you just hope that you kind of um, succeeded in writing that paragraph. And um, it's been a relief, to be honest, to talk to some fire people who say that I got the, the science stuff right. Um, so, um, because, I mean, the thing about writing history is that people, I mean, there was a kind of a popular history that, that, and I don't mean this in a bad sense, but there is kind of a sense that anybody can write history. And that's a good thing. Like anybody can write history. But we don't say the same thing about, um, I don't know what, <laughs> brain surgery, you know, that anybody can do brain surgery, right? So, um, it, it, you're trying to you're trying to write for for a general audience or i was at least trying to write for a general audience um but that can be a lot of work to write for a general audience because you're you're trying to to pitch it at the right level sort of thing and i was trying to pitch it actually for a few levels i was trying the fire ecologists i wanted them to be reading it and i wanted the historians to read it and i wanted most of all the mayor to read it so well in that i believe at least in that latter point you certainly succeeded uh, and as we sit here in 2023, I'm curious, 
uh, with the bicentennial of the fire, um, you know, less than two years, well, I guess not quite two years, a little bit more than two years away. Um, the, uh, you know, what, what do you see as um, important in terms of recognition of, uh, yeah. of that event in 2025? Well, thanks, John, because I think you and I might be the only two people in the world who are thinking of the bicentennial of the Miramichi fire then. But um, I do think, I do, you know, I would love it if Miramichi and if New Brunswick thought about and recognized and noticed the fire's bicentennial, because I think it was, uh, I think it was an important moment in the history of the region and the, and the colony, the province. Um, and I, I also think because it, I think it's a, it offers kind of a different way of looking at or thinking about the, the, of history. I mean, you know, New Brunswick, for example, is so tied in with loyalist history and things like that, that it's, that this offers a different way that's more connected to the physical province, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's a, it's a different way of, of connecting to indigenous um, settler relations. Um, so I think that there's some value in looking at it and I hope that'll be coming up in 2025. Um, I know there have been a few preliminary conversations, uh, you know, about, about something for 2025. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, I, I, like you, believe that there has to be something, you know, that, that recognizes this event. Also, because, again, as you say, it's an event that affected the entire region, you know, generally. It's not, a, it's not a Chatham thing. It's not a Newcastle thing. It's not a Nelson or an upriver or downriver. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's the entire community and it's, and it's much of the province. Um, so I think it's, it's a unique opportunity to kind of acknowledge uh, an event of that kind. Um, and like I say, and also to kind of look at uh, the, uh, again, that connection with nature. And I think to kind of uh, move in that direction, um, in preparation for this, um, we uh, we had a look at a video that Western University did about 10 months ago, uh, where you talked about your work and you talked about, you know, uh, the, I guess, how how you can kind of, you know, uh, apply a, the work that you've done to that relationship between humanity and nature and the fact that, you know, the, the times in which we're living are, are, are just really kind of a tiny sliver of, of that history. And I really, I really like that message that you had about, you know, if we need to change, you know, we can change because we've done it before. We've lived, we lived in a different way with nature before. Um, right. So, yeah, I, uh, so I think, I think, like I say, whether it's, whether, whether it's the fire or it's other things, I think that's a really important message for people to hear. Well, thank you. I think that that's maybe. Um, I think that that is kind of the the lesson would be the lesson of twenty twenty five. The lesson has got to be that the lesson is that the lessons aren't straightforward. I mean, the point of the book, the Miramichi Fire, is not we experienced this in eighteen twenty five. So what we if we experienced a major forest fire in twenty twenty three or whenever, that it would be the exact same, and that we you know. Um, the world has changed. I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a cliche, but it, but in, in environmental terms and climate terms, it's absolutely true that the world has changed. Um, ironically, even though there are more forest fires likely to happen because of climate change, um, Atlanta, Canada might actually do okay in terms of that, that, um, that it will suffer less from 
large forest fires more than other places, for example. So the lessons of the book, the Miramichi Fire, are not that, you know, um, that they're not immediately replicable, but I think that the, um, the, the, the lessons I would want to take from it, and maybe the reason to think about a fire, 1825 fire in 2023 and 2025, is to think about our connections between uh, with nature in a more general sense, and to imagine our responses and to imagine how we can respond. And as you say, I think that um, that the way we've been living since roughly 1900, or I mean, depending on when you started, I mean, you could talk about that. Um, the steam engine, or you can talk about the automobile or whatever. Um, the, it has been just such a small sliver of time. And for most of human existence, we live differently. And we probably will be living differently in 2100, whatever that looks like, um, that we're living now. So. Well, okie dokie. Um, as, as this episode, uh, draws to a close, um, Alan, is there anything more that you would like to uh, to say uh, before we we wrap up for this week? Um, what would I say? Uh, I would say get the book out of your library, folks, um, or even God forbid, buy it. But I mean, the library—that's it's great to see. Um, I know that some people have found it that way. Uh, mm-hmm. What else would I say? I would say that uh, one of the things that I find that I'm disappointed in my own writing of that book is that I did not find much of the Mi'kmaq experience of the fire. And for that very reason, and at a certain point, I kind of thought, uh, I want the book to go forward. I don't want to pretend an expertise on that part of it, but I really hope that that that, that results in um, maybe some Mi'kmaq writing about the fire. And maybe that's something else that should be coming up in 2025 as well, because I feel that that voice is, is certainly missing from my book. And it's not because I ignored it, but because I really couldn't find it. And one of the things that I would say about the book is that it's really kind of a, it's a, um, what would you call it? An ode to sources, like to, to, to written sources that I could find, like a lot of them on the internet through digital databases and that. And of course, those are not the kind of sources that, that um, Mi'kmaq um, survivors of the fire were producing in 1825, or at least those aren't the ones being published in white newspapers and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear more um, of the Mi'kmaq experience of the fire and its effects on Mi'kmaq people in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. That's kind of a call out for someone else to do all the work I didn't do, Sean. But um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I'm sure uh, Tasha is our project's Indigenous Heritage and Culture researcher, certainly echoes that, that same call as do I. He, uh, something that uh, certainly it's, uh, it's certainly a voice that while absent from the fire has certainly been absent from a lot of the retellings of our history here in the community. So it's something, like I say, that we're certainly working uh, to address and uh, to, uh, to change. And so, um, yeah, so uh, to, to, to echo your first point, uh, I know copies of uh, the, the Miramichi Fire of History are at uh, the Newcastle and the Chatham uh, Public Libraries. Uh, you can pick it up uh, at Creative Grounds and Mill Cove Coffee for purchase. Uh, and uh, again, it's available, I'm sure, at many other 
uh, retail outlets as well. Um, so if uh, there's anything more uh, from anybody, then I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining us and for sharing with us uh, your research journey. And hopefully, like I say, uh, we can uh, we will see you again here on the river. We'll hopefully, like I say, as you, uh, we might we might very well after the camera stop rolling here, um, take you up on your offer to come and visit. Um, maybe as part of the uh, the uh, the bicentennial. Maybe as a as a prelude too. Uh, maybe for both. Um, so. Uh, with all of that, like I say, I thank you once again. Thank you, Tasha, for joining us. This, uh, and thanks to all of you uh, for, for watching, and we will see you next week. Thank you.